for now. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, once upon a time, the best-selling book in history, second only to the Bible, was John Bunyan's 17th century classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, there's been a few books since then that have, uh, have surpassed it. Um, another article I saw said it was around the middle of the 20th century, so within living memory for many of us when that, uh, that changed. Um, but The Pilgrim's Progress is one of a handful of contenders for the first true novel in English, and it has never been out of print since the, uh, since the 17th century. Um, if you remember, it's an allegory in which the Christian life is presented as a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And we have the main character. He needs to be rid of his burden of sins. He needs to be fitted out with the armor of God that we'll read about later on in Ephesians. Um, he faces all sorts of trials, including single combat with the demon Apollyon and uh, traveling through the valley of the shadow of death and all sorts of other wonderful things. <coughs> Excuse me. I probably read Pilgrim's Progress for the first time in junior high, though I had certainly seen an animated adaptation of it from the late 1970s much earlier in life. I see a couple of grins for some other folks that have seen that version. My dad actually used to play on his guitar and sing the, uh, the main theme from that, a very 70s folk song kind of thing, really, really, really neat. Uh, in, in fact, you can imagine how that was uh, very captivating for a, for a child, a Christian child back in the day. And in fact, when I was about my daughter Leah's age, one of my favorite toys was a, an action figure about half the size between my G.I. Joes and her Barbies, my sister's Barbies, that, were, um, that was dressed in the full armor of God. Now, this, this action figure may have been called Judah the Christian soldier, but in my mind, he was Christian. He was Pilgrim, the protagonist from the Pilgrim's Progress. That's why I wanted my folks to get him for me, actually. When, when despite some of the uh, anti-Catholic and really anti-Anglican biases that you're going to find in those uh, 17th century Puritan works, it still is a very worthwhile, very edifying read for any Christian of any denomination, um, despite all that. Now, when I read today's collect in the beginning of today's epistle, I couldn't help but think of the Christian life in those same metaphorical terms as a long walk, as a pilgrim's journey. In our collect, we ask God that his grace may always prevent and follow us. Now, today, when we hear that word prevent, we usually think of something stopping something. I'm preventing you from going to the store because I need you to, to go to a different store, maybe. I don't know. Um, but in the language of the King James and of the prayer book, the word prevent means to go before. It means to go before. And so what our collect, we're praying for in our collect is that God's grace would come before us. It would go after us. We're praying that his grace would surround us on our Christian journey. We don't walk the walk of faith alone. God's grace surrounds us because God surrounds us. And then because of God's all-encompassing grace, we can then be given to all good works, as the collect says. We can live the Christian life, trusting and obeying God, doing good to our neighbors, because God surrounds us with his grace. 
On our own, we would fall into the slough of despond or be led astray by the temptations of Vanity Fair or become imprisoned by giant despair, as Pilgrim's Progress marvelously illustrates. But like Christian in the book, God's grace preserves us. His grace rescues us. His grace gets us back on the road to the celestial city. His grace is what keeps us on that road to begin with. Similarly, St. Paul begins our epistle reading with a plea that we would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Again, we see the calling to the Christian life being compared with a walk, being compared with a journey. But we're going to find that St. Paul gives us more than one metaphor, more than one thing to think about in this short six verses. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. You can also find this in page 213 in the prayer book. Um, page 919 in your pew Bibles. Page 213 in the prayer book, 918 in the pew Bibles. St. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this passage picks up immediately where we left off last week in the epistle. And like last week, St. Paul here is referencing his sufferings. Now, in this case, he's talking about his imprisonment. Um, Remember last week, we said how the apostles, the martyrs, all the saints have always seen it as an honor to suffer for the sake of the gospel because they're following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus himself. Well, St. Paul here, to be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, that gives St. Paul a certain amount of moral authority on top of his apostolic authority. Remember that Jesus told the apostles that part of their vocation, their apostolic vocation, would be to suffer for his sake. When St. Paul is writing the book of Ephesians, he's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. But Paul doesn't speak of himself as a prisoner of Rome. He talks about himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Despite his circumstances, St. Paul is in God's hands and Rome's power is limited. God's grace continues to prevent and follow Paul even when he's in prison. And indeed, St. Paul sees his imprisonment as an opportunity to represent the Lord before the highest court in the empire. That's why the ESV in your pew renders the verse as a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, rather than the King James, a prisoner, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, both of them work in the Greek, but that's why they're making those, those, those choices there. Now, Paul is going to use this moral authority as a prisoner of the Lord to exhort the Ephesians, and by extension us, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We've already talked about the metaphor of the Christian life as a walk or a pilgrimage, but what about this concept of vocation, this concept of calling? Oftentimes, we're going to think of a vocation as being synonymous with a job, but the word does mean a calling. So if you're looking at the Pew Bible, it says calling, not vocation, right? We are to live our Christian life in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This idea of calling or having been called um, both imply invitation in the Greek. The Christian life is something that God has invited us into, and that we are to live and walk according to that invitation. 
This should remind us of the idea of God choosing us to be in his family, as we talked about last week when we summarized the first two and a half chapters of the epistle. A major theme of Ephesians is that God has called us. He's invited us. He's chosen us to be united to Christ and to each other by grace, through faith in the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Pilgrim's Progress, the invitation begins when Christian reads in his book and is exhorted to flee the wrath to come on his city of destruction. Our Christian walk does indeed begin turning from our sins to Christ as we are called by God to do so. And then having been united to Christ, the invitation is a call to a life with certain characteristics. St. Paul says here, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. That is, the Christian life is one of humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, this should remind us of what we've already seen in Ephesians to this point. Remember how last week, for example, Paul bent the knee before the Father in his prayer for the Ephesians. And we, t- and we talked about how that's, that humility before God is important when we're going to pray. Remember how God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, as St. James says. St. John Chrysostom says that humility, meekness, and patience really are foundational to our Christian walk. He writes this. How is it possible to walk worthily with all lowliness? Meekness is the foundation of all virtue. If you are humble and are aware of your limits and remember how you were saved, you will take this recollection as the motive for every excellent moral behavior. You will not be excessively impressed with either chains or privileges, You will remember that all is of grace, and so walk humbly. All is of grace. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, these are necessary if we are to forbear one another in love, as we continue on in 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 the epistle. No Christian is an island. We're not on this journey alone. Again, remember those themes from the book of Ephesians. We are, we, the two major themes of being at unity with Christ and in unity with each other. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is accompanied by a variety of companions. They kind of come in and out as some of, some of them die and are taken the short route to the city of destruction. I'm sorry, to the celestial city. They're not going to the city of destruction. They're leaving the city of destruction. I did that first service too. That's, that's going to be tough. Um, in the second part of the book... Christian's family gets on the road to pilgrimage, and they never are without many companions. They've got a full traveling party, a full adventuring party the whole time. Living, worshiping, fellowshipping, working in Christian community means that we're going to have to put up with each other. That's a lot easier when we're humble, gentle, and patient. Now, St. Jerome tells us that this call to forbearance is one of the more elementary aspects of the faith. He writes this, It is not indeed saints who have any need to forbear one another. Rather, it is those in the earlier stage of Christian life who, being human, are still under the control of some passion. So what's the difficulty with Christian community? It's our flesh. It's our passions. Our old man who's often still in that driver's seat. And so we don't forbear. We don't put up with each other. We don't, we don't have patience with each other like we're called to. I don't know about you, but I feel that I'm often still in uh, elementary school, in grade school when it comes to these issues. And I suspect that St. Jerome's statement had not a little irony behind it as well. He's basically saying all of y'all are still first graders. 
Nevertheless, we are called to put forth the effort to live up to our calling and to do so with humility, gentleness, and patience so that we would then forbear with one another in love. That's what he says in the passage, in love. That agape love St. Paul couples with forbearance, that helps us to crucify the flesh. And this love is possible by the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who made us one with Christ and one with each other. And he's the one who changes our hearts and makes living out this unity possible. St. Paul says that the unity of the Spirit is the bond of peace in our epistle. John Chrysostom ties that language of bond and bond of peace back to St. Paul's bondage as a prisoner. Paul could willingly become bound as a prisoner for the Lord. And when you read the book of Acts, he's very willing to go. The rest of the church is like, don't go, Paul, you're going to die. And he says, don't stop me. This is what the Lord's called me to. And so Paul, is, Paul willingly became bound as a prisoner for the Lord because he's already bound to God and to the church. John Chrysostom writes this. Beautiful was Paul's bond. Beautiful, too, is this bond of peace among Christians. And the former arises from the latter. Bind yourselves to your brethren. Beautiful is this bond. With this bond, we bind ourselves together both to one another and to God. This is not a chain that bruises. It does not cramp the hands. It leaves them free, gives them ample room and greater courage. So unity does indeed bring peace. I'm so very happy to be a rector of a parish that's generally peaceful. And that's a peace that comes from the unity of the spirit. That's, I mean, some of y'all been in other churches. That's not the way it always is in the church, right? And that unity we have, that peace we have, that doesn't mean that we always agree with each other. It doesn't mean that everybody looks the same, does the same, even worships the same when we're under the same roof. Father John does things a little bit differently than me when he's at the altar, and that's okay. But it does mean that we're all part of the same supernatural family. We're all part of that same body of Christ in one particular local expression of it, right? Let's look at verse 4 as we continue in our epistle. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So despite the tragic and often sinful institutional or denominational divisions in the church, this really is a key pair of verses that speak to the essential unity of all the Christian faithful. And we need to have the humility to see our Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, Orthodox, or even non-denominational friends as brothers in Christ, even when we do have some important doctrinal disagreements. These, these what, uh, what Al Mohler calls the secondary issues, the things that rightly mean we really can't have full table and pulpit fellowship, but we can recognize each other still as the body of Christ. So if it's important to see those guys as your brothers, how much more the person next to you in the pew? How much more that person across the table from you at Synod? Our own 39 Articles of Religion have a pretty broad definition of the visible church. Article 19 says, The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance 
and all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. Word and sacrament. That's really what it boils down to. And then our article goes on to point out that the historic churches have indeed erred from time to time, both in faith and in morals. What's that tell us? None of us are infallible. We all need constant course, correction, course corrections by the, Holy, by the Holy Scriptures. And we need the virtue of humility. After all, our own Anglican house has quite a bit of broken windows right now, so we have no cause to look down our noses at our brethren. Yet there is indeed one faith. As Article 6 notes, we recognize that all the essentials of faith and morals must come from the Scriptures. Now, and there are really two potential errors that individual Christians or various uh, churches, denominations can fall into. The first error is adding to that one faith and raising up human traditions to the same level as God's word. Now, we love our traditions, right? That's what we, we, we love them. They're good. But don't raise them up to the level of God's word. We traditionalists, the, we high church traditionalists, <laughs> This is often a very big temptation for us. When left to our own devices, we make really good Pharisees. The other potential error, though, is subtracting from the one faith. And usually that's by substituting human wisdom for what God's word says. And really, when we look at it, those two things tend to come around to the, to the same problem, right? It's that big horseshoe theory of, uh, of, of extremes. But this is the error that more liberal churches usually fall into. Now, once upon a time, this was largely um, related to downplaying the supernatural, right? Um, you know, we, we do, they didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. They denied the resurrection. They explained away the feeding of the 5,000, things like that. Nowadays, the really big issue is dismissing biblical ethics especially with respect to human sexuality. That's the trend. Either way, whether we're looking at the miraculous or at, or, or at the ethics, whether we're looking at diminishing the faith or diminishing the Bible's morals, I can't help but hear the voice of the serpent hissing, did God really say? So our call is to hold the line on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Be neither a disciple of the Pharisees nor a disciple of the serpent. Uphold the truths found in the Bible without letting secondary or tertiary controversies break that essential unity of Christ's body. Love and help your fellow pilgrims walk together in unity. And note in our verses the basis of our, humanity, our, our unity. We have the same spirit, one spirit. We have one Lord. We have the same Lord, Jesus Christ. We have the same biblical faith. We have the same sacraments of unity. We have the same God and Father. And again, remember last week, we talked about that, that fatherhood of God, that universal fatherhood from which all earthly fatherhood springs. St. Paul called himself the spiritual father of the Corinthians. He called St. Timothy his spiritual son. Uh, many of y'all call me Father Isaac because I'm your priest and mentor. Same for Father John. You call him Father because he's your priest and your pastor. Yet all of that is just a reflection of the universal and perfect fatherhood of God. Any good I do as your pastor is because God's goodness and God's grace are there. Any good I do as the dad to my two little girls is because of God's grace and God's goodness. That very grace that both prevents and follows us. 
Indeed, St. Paul says here that God is the father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Because our father is all-encompassing, lavishing on us an all-encompassing grace, we have the unity of the Spirit. We are tied together with bonds of peace because we're tied together in him as we walk the way of the pilgrim in this life of faith. And we say this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost.